0: Our Father, we are a people who desire truth. It is the church that is supposed to stand for truth. It is we who are lovers of the truth who are are supposed to live according to truth. And I pray, O God, that as we gather week after week, that the focus of our attention as we seek to worship you aright will be a context of truth truth where the Spirit of God speaks to our individual souls and prompts from within us the longings and and confessions deep from within. O God, if this pulpit errs, I pray, Father, that you will stop up the ears of your people such that they would never hear anything but the truth. And, Father, if this pulpit becomes a place where heresy is spoken where your word is undercut and dishonored, might the one who stands behind it be smitten. Might he be removed from the very presence of these people of yours? Because we are a people who not only long for truth, we desperately need truth. And there's nobody else, there's no place else that is telling us the truth It is the church, O God, that is supposed to be standing squarely and firmly and consistently on your word. Might that be said of us here at Gracie Van? Our Father, we thank you for the providences of the kind providences of the past week and pray that those gentle reminders will stimulate us to higher levels of commitment to Jesus Christ. We are a people who have been somewhat deluded by the quest for success. And we found that it did not bring us what we had hoped it would. And so many of us in this room want to live our lives significantly as opposed to successfully. We want to count. We want to matter. We want to have meaningful lives. We want to leave behind us a heritage, a home, a a family that within has been inculcated a commitment to Jesus Christ and His Word. Father, use us. Raise up an army of men and women here who are eager to be laborers in that field that are so white and to harvest. And I pray once again, Lord, that every person here might be burdened. Burdened with a sense of oughtness for reaching men and women who if they die this afternoon will spend an eternity in an unspeakable condition separated from God known as hell. Father, for those of us who've been delivered by your grace we bless you and worship you and praise you. Your loving-kindness to us is better than life. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that our worship service today, you will find a different spirit, a group of people who know that they've arrived in this room not to be consumers, but to be performers. We are here, O God, to please the audience of one. And when we leave, we, we pray that we will sense that we have done well in the presence of our Almighty God. Father, accept our gifts, some are larger than others, but that's not the issue. The issue is the condition from the heart of the heart from which they flow. And I pray that our hearts might be right, that we might recognize that all that we have, we've been given by a gift, that there's no abilities to make wealth that we have that you didn't give us. And we are sharing, we are giving back only a small portion of that which you've entrusted to us. For many of us, it is nothing more than an act of stewardship that we give. It is not that we're trying to impress anyone around us or meet any kind of budgets. We're trying to be faithful with all that you've entrusted to us. We make our prayer this morning in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Thank you. To... um, the book of Psalms. Now, that's not what's printed in your bulletin, and I know that. But uh, just stay with me for a minute. And while you're finding Psalm 29, I want to just mention two quick things. First of all, <clears throat> do you remember back on the 11th on our anniversary, um, I s- closed our sermon, our, our, our service by saying there are two things that I want to spend my my life um, in, leading us toward as a church. One of them was where we aimed most of our or more of our resources outside of us and into a world that's lost and dying. The other one was to build and to, uh, to seed established here a, a climate, of a burden for lost men and women. Well, we're going to begin to work on that and uh, in the next 10 years, we hope to see some, uh, some fruit of our labors. But we're going to, uh, if you've taken my systematics theology class, listen up for a second. If you haven't, uh, there'll be another one offered in July sometime. We'd love to invite you in there. But there's a part of that systematics class that is so difficult. If you've been in there, you'll remember it. It's the the antinomy between God's sovereignty and man's moral responsibility. You remember that discussion? remember the book that I tried to promote was J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God? And remember that? Well, we're going to take six weeks or so to study that book in a small class. (coughs) First of all, you need to have gone to systematic theology. But um, if that interests you, Uh, The week after spring break, which will be about the third week in March, we're going to start a class here and um, just discussing that grand and glorious issue about evangelism and the sovereignty of God. If you're interested in that, let me know. And then um, there's an insert in your bulletin. I won't be using this this morning, but I hope you'll take it with you because it'll be in your bulletins next week as well. Um, Sometime across the week, read this just give it some prayerful consideration because what we're going to talk about next week will be this. Um, But I I hope you'll be prepared, or it'll better prepare you if you'll read it this week and come in here next Sunday having already read this so that I don't have to read it to you. I know you don't like to be read to. Well, most of you know that we're in the midst of a little uh, mini-series, probably four weeks or so, on the subject and topic of worship. And last week, you may recall that uh, I tried to offer you a new paradigm for worship—a paradigm that said this: No, <coughs> you're not the um, you're not the the uh, the audience. God is the audience, and um, that would make you. If you're not the audience, what are you? That would make you the performers. That is, that you have not come to watch performers. You have come to perform. You have not come to critique, you have come to be critiqued by the grand celestial audience of one, which is God. And um, then my role is simply to be a prompter for you as we try to worship in a way that's acceptably pleasing to the the audience that uh, examines us all even this very moment. One of the texts, uh, I mean, the text that I used last week was um, in Genesis chapter 4, but here's one in Psalm 29. I just wanted to read you these first two verses of Psalm 29, which were really by way of reminder. That's all this is. This is just trying to get us uh, rolling as we go to the, the second part of the series. Look at these two verses. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Do you see what the psalmist did there? Do you see the leap that he made? And for him, it was a very simple leap. Give unto the Lord. Give unto the Lord. Give unto the Lord. Worship the Lord. You see, he would use those things as synonyms. He would say, giving unto the Lord, giving unto the Lord, giving, is worship. And that's what I was trying to say last week. As I I pointed out that Cain and Abel both brought things. They brought things into the presence of God that they could give. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the essence of worship, what you and I bring to give unto the Lord. Now, (coughs) the text that I announced is one um, that that we'll look at in a second. Well, i I tell you what, let's look at it now Uh, in Mark chapter 12, because this is really going to be my first point. So if you can find Mark chapter 12, and we're going to introduce some new material at this point. But before I even read that, I got a a Bible quiz for you, okay? Don't you love those? Uh, You know, you want to so desperately pass a test. Well, here's one that I think, well, I don't know. I don't know, We'll, we'll see. If I were to pose this question to you, if I were to say, identify the Christian's foremost responsibility, now, because we're in a, in a context of a topic, you might get it right this morning, but um, many times when I've taught on the subject of worship in smaller classes, I've, I've often asked that. What is the Christian's number one responsibility as a believer? And I'll get this answer. Win the lost. That's a very wonderful re- reply. It's just not the accurate reply. I'll get this, this response. Discipleship. Make disciples. Well, that, too, is a very wonderful um, reply. And as you know, both of those things comprise the Great Commission. But it is not the Christian's foremost responsibility. The Christian's foremost responsibility is worship. Now, guys, I don't. I wonder whether you agree with me, and and I um um, and, and it, that's that's okay. That's you know, I adore my wife, but we don't agree about everything, do we? Um, but here's what I want to do this morning. I want to. Boy, this might be a bit high-minded of me thinking that I could convince a very sophisticated audience like you. But what I want to try to do is spend our time convincing you that my proposition is correct that the Christian's foremost responsibility is not evangelism. It is not discipleship. It is worship. That our number one duty is worship. Now, to that end, I have 12 arguments, and I'm going to view myself as somewhat of a, an attorney trying to make a case before this very uh, sophisticated jury and trying to win you to my side of the argument and so that you'll decide in my favor. So I have 12 lines of argument for you this morning, but keep in mind what I'm trying... These aren't just idle arguments. They're trying to prove a proposition. And here's the proposition, that the Christians foremost... Number one, numero uno, responsibility and duty is worship. You ready? Let me read you my text. It's in Mark chapter 28, beginning at, excuse me, Mark chapter 12 at verse 28. There's a vast difference, isn't there? Mark 12 at verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, what is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him. The first commandment, the first, of all, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Oh, the grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Again, rarely in the Scriptures do you get Jesus so pointed about anything. But his being pointed is, um, is the result of a question that he, that he was asked, and the question is very simply, what's, what's the first commandment? And Jesus says very clearly, you can read it, I don't need to reiterate it, simply, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, strength, and Toenails. Love the Lord your God. Now, now, gang, I'm about to make a leap here. Um, so you've got to stay with me, and here's my leap. The leap is simply that the place, what I'm suggesting is that the place where my love for God is best developed and expressed is in times of worship. Now, um, what I'm, that's my first point. That's my, my first of 12. I'm suggesting to you that uh, when Jesus identifies something as the number one on his hit parade, what he did was say, I want you to love God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind, and I'm suggesting that if I'm going to do that, the place where that's going to be best expressed and best developed is in worship. I didn't say it's the only place. I said it's the best place where our hearts are developed in love and where that love is expressed is worship. And Jesus identifies that love that is developed and expressed in worship as the number one thing that he's concerned about. Now, you say, well, Jimmy, um, that's not the best of arguments I've ever heard because there's a little leap in your, in your, um, your strategy here. I agree, but we have 11 more points to go. I just wanted to establish that first. The idea that Jesus has something that's very, very important, and it has to do with love. And when I look over my Christian experience, where is it that love is best developed and best expressed? It is within the context of worship. Now, don't get, get me wrong here. I'm not saying Sunday morning corporate worship. I'm including that. But I'm saying acts of worship, which can be private and corporate. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But that's my first line of argument. Let me give you a second one. Well, we're going we're gonna to race through the Bible this morning. But I think you know a little bit about the history of the Old Testament. The uh, first book of the Bible, of course, is Genesis. It is a book of beginnings. That is, everything gets rolling in the book of Genesis. We've identified Abraham. He's finally had his son Isaac. Then Jacob goes on and... Um, has those 12 sons. They finally move to Egypt. And uh, once they're down in Egypt, things really begin to, to happen because Genesis is a book of beginnings. But the book of Exodus is a book of redemption. Don't you remember the people of God having been brought out of Egypt by a strong hand, all those plagues on Pharaoh? But remember the last one. It was the one about shedding blood and sprinkling it on the doorpost of your home. And so Jehovah is is redeeming a people by the spilling and the shedding of blood. Then those people come out of um, Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. Remember all that story? And then they arrive at Mount Sinai where, ladies and gentlemen, I suggest to you a nation is born. If you can find Exodus 19 real quick, this nation is born, not, not so much geopolitically, but this nation of the people of God. I'm in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, where we find this. Now, says God, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for, the, for all the earth is mine. He is bringing into existence a people that is his. Actually, they were brought into existence with, the, with Abraham, but now there is this new formation of his people. Now read with me the next verse, Exodus 19:6. Now, if you're going to be my people, now I just inserted that, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God gets ready to form his nation. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He says, all right, here we go. I'm ready to get started, fellas, and you're going to be my people, and if you obey me, you will be a special treasure to me out of all the peoples in the earth because all the earth is mine. But this is what I want. This is what I have in mind for my people, they shall be a kingdom of evangelists, a kingdom of discipleship makers. No, they're to be a kingdom of priests. Ladies and gentlemen, that theme is found in the book of Isaiah. It is found in the book of 1 Peter. It is found in the book of Revelation that we as the people of God are called to be a kingdom of priests. And gang, you do know what priests do, don't you? (laughs) Um, I'm suggesting that my second point is simply that when God brought his people into existence, he brought them into existence for the express purpose that they should be worshipers. Now, um... Then we go to chapter 20 in Exodus. Here's my third point. We go to chapter 20 and uh, these people who are now a nation called unto God are given a law. You know what that's called. That's the Ten Commandments. After that, gang, what is the very first thing that God mandates to this nation <coughs> after this nation has received his law? What's the very first thing he mandates? It is <laughs> a place of worship. Guys, from Exodus 25 through Exodus 31, seven chapters. Um, in fact, it's stated uh, clearly in Exodus 25:8 where you see God saying, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So from 25 to the end of the book, what do you get? Now remember, we got a a, a book of beginnings. We got a people that's been called now to be a kingdom of priests. Their first mandate now, they've been given the law, their first mandate is go build a place for worship. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible spends one chapter, a total of 31 verses on the subject of creation. The Bible spends seven chapters and a total of 243 verses in description of a worship center. Everything is to be done according to mandate. 18 cubits this way, 14 cubits that way, go this way, go that way. I want you to do this. I want it to have 14 budding almonds on it. Detail after detail after detail that God gives concerning this house of worship. Now, sandwiched in there, in this 25 to 31, is the golden calf incident, which as you know was an incident of wrongful worship. And then right back to the details of the worship center all the way to the end of the book, and then at the end of the book, God shows up in this tabernacle, that has been this, this tent that has been built in, and it says again and again and again. Go read it, the last chapter where it says, and Moses did according to the things that the Lord told him to do. And Moses did according to what God told him to do. And Moses did exactly that. You know, what had he done? He had built a building, a worship center, exactly, exactly, exactly the way that God said he wanted it built. Everything about these people, or to be different, but especially their worship. Their worship was to set them apart as a people who belonged to Jehovah. In the book of Revelation, ladies and gentlemen, all of history culminates in one grand, glorious, eternal worshiping community. It's called the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah 66, verses 22 and 23. And go look what those people are doing in the new heavens and the new earth. They are worshiping. My fourth line of argument comes from the next book in the Bible, the book of Leviticus. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you know, when I tell people, and they say, I want to read the Bible. I say, well, good, I'd love for you to read the Bible. And they uh, and say, well, I'm going to start at Genesis, and I'm going to go through the Revelation. I say, wait, wait, don't do it that way because there's a couple of books in there that you can really get bogged down in pretty quick and I don't want you to get bogged down, so let me let me just give you some. The first time you read it through, why don't you read this, 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 this. But let me tell you one of the books that I am careful to exclude. It is the book of Leviticus. You ever read it? you ever looked for a commentary on it? Not many exist. But do you know what it's all about? Do you know what the book of Leviticus is about? Every instrument, every item every detail that can possibly be mentioned goes into giving us a description of what God will allow and what he won't allow in this sanctuary. The whole book is devoted to the subject of rightful versus wrongful worship the whole book. Uh, It answers the question, how is it that a a sinful man can approach a holy God? So the where and the how, that is, the sanctuary and, and the how, occupy the bulk of the books of Exodus and Leviticus. Fifthly, the Ten Commandments. Uh, we know the Ten Commandments. You know, I've, I've often wanted to say, how many can name all ten of them? And uh, in an audience like this, I wonder how many people could name all ten of them. But you know what uh, the first one is, don't you? Um, you shall have no other gods before me. That's a command about worship. The second one, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. That's a commandment about worship. The third one has to do with taking the Lord's name in vain. Um... Uh, I think you could probably say that too. The fourth one, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The first four commandments of the 10 are designed to direct you in your worship. The other six have to do with other things, but fully 40% of the commandments are given to us so that you and I would know how to rightfully worship. Um, Number six, Uh, did you know if you can find John 4. John 4 is, is a passage that's often mentioned when it comes to worship. But there's just one little item that I want to point out to you. This is where Jesus meets up with the woman in the well and Jesus finally figures out who she is, You know, or not finally, he figures out who she is and exposes her. And after Jesus says to her, you know, you got seven husbands, woman. And she said, ooh, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> well, good for you, lady. You know, I perceive, you know, well, good. Yeah, yeah he just read everything about you. You know, he must be something. And she says, I have a question for you. Uh, Some people say we should worship on that mountain. Some people say we should worship on that mountain. Which mountain do you think we should worship on, Jesus? Could you possibly tell us? So, I mean, what she's trying to do, ladies and gentlemen, is just skirt the issue. She's trying to shift the heat just a little bit off of herself having been discovered as a woman who has seven men that she cavorts with. And and part of Jesus' reply is simply this. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, that's, that's a wonderful definition, but that's not what I wanted you to see. For the Father is seeking. The Father is seeking such to worship him. Gang, um, I, didn't, I didn't do all my homework, so maybe you can correct me at the end of the service, but I don't know where this is said any place else in the Bible that God is seeking. That is, he is seeking a certain kind of function. Uh, he came to seek and to say that which was lost. But in terms of having found them, what does the Father delight in? Worshippers. He longs. He desires. He desires worshipers. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, he only really desires it, he demands it. But let me give you my seventh proof. It's found in Philippians chapter 2. This is an interesting... I mean, Paul gets carried away, it seems, here. In Philippians chapter 2, he is... Excuse me, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Paul gets carried away and says, Beware of the dogs. (laughs) Philippians 3, 2. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. I mean, there's a group of people out there that he doesn't like, and he wants the people of God to be careful about them, and he says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, uh, though I myself, etc., etc. Here's my point. When Paul, he says, I, I want you to avoid those folks um, and you know get friendly with these other folks, but when he, when he uses an item to identify which is the true and which is the false, you know what he uses? Worship. He says, this is how you'll be able to identify the true guys. They're the ones that worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Those are the true circumcision. Oh, beware of those dogs, mutilation. Oh, no, you don't like them. But but the true guys are the ones who worship a certain way. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm suggesting to you that our worship is a proof of the reality or the lack of reality that is within us. If you worship correctly, then you're not one of the dogs. But if you don't worship correctly, that would put you in the other group. Gang, um, my eighth line of argument is really found in the book of 1 Peter, but it's one... uh, Actually, we're going to be in 1 Peter just for a couple of uh, minutes, but 1 Peter chapter 2... Verses 4 and 5. Let me read you those. Coming to him as, a, as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, gang, there are several metaphors that are used in the New Testament to describe the people of God. One of them is a body and the purpose of hearing that metaphor of a body is to talk the grand discussion of spiritual gifts. Then you have the the metaphor of a bride. We are the bride awaiting our coming bridegroom. But the other metaphor that is used to describe us, and I suggest in terms of our function, is the metaphor of temple. You're being built up into this spiritual house. You folks who are a holy priesthood, and uh, you're going to get together and offer spiritual sacrifices because you're a people designed by me to function as a temple. That's number eight. Number nine um, is absolutely one of my favorites, ladies and gentlemen, and I I could get so... I could really fizz all over. You know, people don't sit on the front row in this church because they call it the Shamu section. Aren't they cute? But if you want to get spewed on, listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is where Paul is addressing the church at Corinth and he's talking about the confusion that is going on in, um, in Corinth and trying to correct it. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 24, he makes this observation. That is, when they're all gathered, when the church is gathered, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. Do you know what Paul has just said? He said, when the people of God get together for worship and an unbeliever enters the door, what is it, ladies and gentlemen, tell me, what is it that is supposed to convince them and convict them? What is it? The sermon? He doesn't say that, ladies and gentlemen. The thing that is supposed to convince and convict an unbeliever is his observations of the people of God at worship. He walks into their midst and he sees them engaged in this holy activity of worship and he says, Oh, my. What? Is it that I am missing that I sense and I see in those people as they worship? You know he sees among us, ladies and gentlemen? He sees us talking about yesterday's football game. He sees us asleep. He sees us not singing the hymnody. He sees us writing notes. And he's convinced, all right, he is convinced that this is a place that he doesn't want to be. Because if that's what it means to be a believer, who needs that? What he's supposed to do, what he's supposed to find among us is a people so engaged, so serious about their worship of God that he too is drawn to Christ, not by watching me by watching you. It's called, ladies and gentlemen, doxological evangelism. As the people praise the living God, unbelievers are convinced. Yep. There's reality to this. My tenth line of argument, and I've got to hurry, is really found in Luke chapter 7. You know the story when Jesus is having lunch with Simon and the lady breaks in and pours oil on his feet and washes them with her hair. And, and Simon says, it's in Luke 7:47, if 7, uh, 44 and following if you'd like to look, but 11, Luke 7. And Simon says, yeah, you know, if he knew what kind of woman was touching him, he would stop it. You know, he wouldn't let that, that prostitute and woman to, to touch him. And Jesus asked that question about, you know, a guy owed 500 bucks, a guy owed five bucks, and uh, the, the man who, to whom it was owed forgave them both. Which of them Simon loved more? And Simon says, well, I guess the one that, uh, you know, he forgave the most. And that's when that great principle comes. Yeah, he who has forgiven little loves little. But here's my point. If you'll read that story, Jesus goes on to say this. Simon, when I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no towel for my hands. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't display any love for me. All of that to say, ladies and gentlemen, when we don't worship, he notices. He notices who does, and he notices who doesn't. Eleventh, and this is just an opinion of mine, I suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the key to endurance, the key to perseverance in an otherwise difficult journey is worship. The thing that keeps us standing upright is worship. Here's my final argument, number 12. Gang, you want to know how valuable worship is? Just ask the devil because all he wanted was five minutes' work. You see those kingdoms out there, Jesus? You see the beauty of these kingdoms and their glory? Yeah, yeah, I do. I'll give it all to you if you'll just worship me. Satan knew how important worship was. This is a quote from A.W. Tozer. God intended for a new convert to become a worshiper first. After that, he can become a worker. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I I, want to close with this. People who don't enjoy worship now, you need to understand. Get this. Wake up long enough to hear this one. If you don't enjoy worship now, I want you to know the grave will not change you. And it is crystal clear from the book of Revelation that eternity will be spent in worship. And eternity will not be long enough for the worship that God deserves. If the only worship that you perform is the one hour that you spend here a week, then I want to suggest to you that spending an eternity in worship must hold very little excitement for you. That's my case, ladies and gentlemen. My case to suggest to you that the Christian's foremost priority is worship. And having heard all that, do you think there are any changes that um, need to go on in your life? Perhaps maybe um, changing the way we spend Saturday nights Maybe um, maybe beginning a period of daily worship, private worship. Or maybe, um, maybe we need to eliminate some of those non-essential Sunday activities that we've committed ourselves to. Because now we understand that the thing that God seeks and desires the most from us is not our money, cattle on a thousand hills are his what he desires from us is worship let's pray together our father if I have erred in my argument I pray that you will correct it such that the people are not confused I pray that you will have mercy on them that the only instruction they heard this morning was mine and um, I am no infallible agent so help them to pick out that which is true and to uh, delete that which is false but father if there's truth I pray that you will bury it in our hearts that it will begin to bring forth fruit in how we worship how we prepare for worship how often we worship what we do in worship might all of it prepare us to be people who worship in spirit and in truth so that the Father can find us doing what he so desires to see us doing. Father, if you've led people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, who don't know what it means to trust in Christ and him alone for their salvation, I pray, Father, that in something that was said or sung or prayed, that they might sense that there is reality. Reality to this gospel, reality to this God, reality to this crucified Christ. And as they have watched the people who sat around them, that they watched them with such keen interest because they observed in them such an interest in holy things that they have been convicted about their lack of interest in holy things. Father, use Gracie Van to reach a lost and dying culture both in her evangelism and in her worship. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.